This is part three of a four-part series for couples and individuals desiring to find and create true intimacy. One of the things that excites me about what we're talking about, it really does excite me, is the transition from feeling like you can't be in charge of your life to a phase where you can be in charge. You can control the areas that you focus on or what you do with your life. And that excites me because many times people get stuck in ruts and they think, well, I just, I don't know what to do or I can't do anything about it. I remember a lady came to one of my educational classes and we were talking about the things that people can do to increase their confidence and their, their wholeness and their well-being. And she just she just looked at me and she's like, I, I just can't do that. And I looked at her and I said, what, what is it? What are the beliefs that you have about yourself that, that make you feel like you can't change your life? What are those beliefs that make you feel like you can't change your life? And, and I sent her home with that assignment because she literally had given up hope. And what I want to say to you is I appreciate you listening to the show. I appreciate you taking the time because I know for a fact that the more time and energy you put into your self-development, you'll change your life and you'll begin to create and find more deep, intimate relationships. So I'm way excited for that today and uh, looking forward to that opportunity of sharing that. But again, we've talked about already, we've talked about becoming whole and we've talked about why we have fears. We've talked about attachment styles and how you spend your discretionary time. Are you spending time on the things? that you really want to do to make your life better. And if you aren't, I encourage you to go back and listen to uh, our earlier tapes or our earlier classes. I've talked about uh, the, the specific things that prevent us from uh, finding true intimacy, which included being emotionally unavailable, a fear of touch and physical intimacy, jealousy and lacking in trust, shy and over, being over self-conscious, uh, being needy or dependent upon other people, and then demanding love. And those are some of the things that we've talked about. And then we talked about reaction sequences, and that was all in the last class. Now, today, I'm, I'm really excited. I absolutely love the content that we're going to be talking about today. One of the reasons why is this. I don't believe we have to have mediocre relationships. How many people do you know that have mediocre relationships? How many people do you know that have bad relationships but stay in them? And then how many people do you know that just go from one relationship to the next, bad relationship after bad relationship after bad relationship? And why do people do that? Why don't we take the time to step back and say, okay, I'm sick and tired of failing. Why don't I do it different? Why don't I do something different that's going to work? Because literally, and this is what I tell people, I, tell, I told this person I was working with on Friday, this last Friday, I said, you know, here's the question for you to consider. If you will pay the price now and do it right just once, that's all it takes is just once, you're much more likely to be happy for a long term in life. It just takes one healthy relationship. And, and ironically, these people say, I don't even know what a healthy relationship looks like. I've never seen it. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know even how to begin. So that's what actually excites me about today's class because I'm going to talk about specific things that you can do to create intimacy in your life and in your relationships. That is exciting to me. So let's get started in this process. There's a concept that is called intimate experiences. Now, if you still have a fear of intimacy, you're probably afraid of intimate experiences. Now, let me define an intimate experience. An intimate experience could be a smile. It could be a wink. It could be a touch. It could be a phone call to say, I'm thinking about you. It could be spending extra time with each other. 
It could be turning off the cell phone to make sure that you're giving each other full attention. How many times have you been in a conversation with a friend and they get a phone call and you say, oh, just a second. So you go to that phone call, you come back and you don't remember what you guys were talking about. Or it's now out of context because that other phone call took your mind away from it. Cell phones are literally, in my opinion, things that can destroy our, our unity together in relationships. One of the things I was teaching a class at the local university, and I had the students do a, do a kind of a analysis for me. And I said, okay, how many, how many students on campus are actually talking on their cell phone as they're walking around the campus? Now, uh, the interesting thing was there was about 20 to 25 percent of students at any given time that were talking on a cell phone while they were walking on and off of campus. Now, you might not think that that's a big deal because they're connecting with the people that they're talking to, but that's, those are people that they're talking to. What about the people that are walking by them that they're just completely ignoring because they, they're on their cell phone. And what I said to the students is this, whether it matters or not, it's a cultural change because when I was on this very same campus, cell phones did, did not exist. And people, when they interacted with each other, they held the door for each other. They actually smiled at each other. And then they actually said hi to one another. It's really hard to say to hi to somebody that you're walking by when you're on your cell phone. Anyway, my point is this, if you're going to be with somebody, shut down your cell phone, shut it off so you can engage in the process of creating an intimate conversation. Remember, intimate is not sexual. I often talk with people about this because when you say intimacy, one of the first things you think about is sexual intimacy. Well, it's not sexual intimacy that I'm talking about. I'm talking about many different types of intimacy, and that's what excites me because I'm going to outline six types of intimacy that will help you better understand what intimacy really looks like rather than this, this, this part that we think of, well, it's sex. It's not, intimacy is not just sex. All right, so let me continue on with intimate interactions. We talked about turning off the cell phone. How about random acts of kindness? Baking a cake, taking over a flower, going and picking up their favorite drink, something that says, and again, this is intimate experiences can occur with anybody. You can have them with friends. You can have them with, even with people you don't know, you can do random acts of kindness. You can create intimate experiences by simple things. One of my favorite things to do is just to say hi to people and smile at them or to open the door for them when they don't expect it. The other day I was at a building and there was an elderly person walking up and I realized that they're going to have a hard time opening up the door. I went and opened up the door and the look on their eye was just like, well, thank you. They just weren't expecting it. And that's one of the fun things to do in life is to create intimate experiences and doing things that people don't expect you to do. So whether you're married or whether you're single, the question I'm going to ask you is how many intimate experiences do you have every day? Now you say, well, intimate. Um, okay, I've already defined some. A smile, a wink, a touch. Okay, random acts of kindness or serving one another. How many of those do you create every day for yourself and the people around you? Now, Dr. John Gottman, he was talking about married couples, and he suggested that couples uh, should have five positives or preferably up to 10 positives for every negative, one negative communication that they have together. So whether it's five or 10, let's just say you've got five positive communication things that you talk about to one negative, or let's say it's 10. I, I don't care what it is. How many intimate experiences do you have in comparison to negative intimate experiences. 
Now, what's a negative intimate experience? It's a face that's a frown or a discussion that's negative or pessimistic. It's a negative comment. It's a criticism. It's a critique. It's a put down. It's why are you wasting your time? How many negative interactions do we have with each other rather than intimate conversations, intimate experiences? And what I want to say is the more intimate experiences you create, the more healthy you personally will be because you'll be focusing on the good in life rather than the bad. It is so easy to focus on the bad in life. How many people do you know that talk negative, 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 negative? Well, the fact is that 75% of our communication, 75% of our communication is negative. Yuck. Yuck. Let's take that out. Let's get rid of that. And let's put into our communication, into our conversations, positive feedback, uplifting people. Let's create intimate experiences. And so one of the things I'm going to tell you really quickly, if you want to change your life, change how you approach your marriage relationship or your dating relationships or your friendships with other people, create more intimate experiences. Now, some of you are going to say, well, I just don't feel comfortable doing that. That's not who I am. Well, here's a great way to start making it who you are. If you want to create intimate relationships with people, long-term intimate relationships, those are the things that you can do to build your friendship or friendships with other people. So I encourage you to create intimate experiences. Here, here's something I've observed as a therapist. I can tell when a couple comes into my office, I can tell a lot about the relationship before they even talk. And here's how. When they walk into my office, it's their body language, how they talk to each other, the positive things that they did during the week. I'm trying to get a solicit, what are some of the positive things that go on? Sometimes I'll ask couples, tell me what you guys are doing to strengthen your relationship. One of the fascinating responses is, well, not much. Uh, well, we, uh, uh, well, uh, ooh, uh, and they hem and ha, and they can't come up with anything because they're not taking the time to nurture the inner things. Now compare that to the couple that comes into my office and says, you know what, she left me a note in my lunch bag. Or, you know what, he came home and he helped me with the dishes and helped me bathe the children. Or he came home and he said, hey, I've got a surprise for you. And they went out and did something that night. Or he said, hey, let's go for a walker. Whatever it was, they took time to create those intimate moments, those intimate experiences. All right, so those intimate experiences those intimate moments are what create intimate relationships. And again, I don't care if this is with a husband, a wife, a friend, a girlfriend, a boyfriend. It, it, it's not, that doesn't matter. It's that you're creating those intimate experiences with the people around you. Now, the more you do that, the more you like people and the more people like you. It's just that simple. Create as many intimate experiences as you can. So again, as, as a therapist, I see this couple come into my office, and if I can see them having intimate experiences, I know that they're on the right track and they're much more likely to succeed in their day-to-day -day living together. So let's ask you the question, why do couples stop creating intimate experiences? What do you think? People stop creating intimate experiences because they feel violated or hurt by their partner or their spouse or the boyfriend or their girlfriend or their friend. But sometimes people get so caught up in their own world that they stop doing the things that make relationships work. They literally just create bad habits and they stop doing what makes friendships work and what develops them. And so sometimes people don't have major problems, but they just stop doing the things that work and that make relationships work. I really believe that if we would just focus more on the positive in each other, 
we would have a whole lot less conflict because once people start focusing on the negative, they have a lot of problems in the relationships. So as we're talking about creating true intimacy, which is what this, this class is all about, true intimacy is creating those intimate experiences and focusing on them. I have actually had couples come into my office fighting like cats and dogs, literally just, just, just arguing and fighting. And, and, I, and finally I say, hey, wait, 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 time out, time out, time out, time out. Let's take a break here for a second. I know you're really frustrated with each other. I know you're ticked off at each other. And I understand the, if I was to ask you the real reason why, you would both say, because your needs are not being met. You're not feeling loved. You're not feeling appreciated. So let me ask you the question. If I could just give you a simple assignment, just this week, I want you to focus every day on you individually doing 10 things or 10, creating 10 intimate experiences every day for a week. Now, if couples will do that, the next week they come to my office, they come in and the relationship climate has changed. And what do I mean by relationship climate? What I mean is they're spending time focusing on the positive rather than focusing on the negative in each other. Now, some people say, well, that's, that's, that's kind of hokey. I can't do that. No, you can do it. If you just want to, if you want to have a better relationship, if you want to have a better intimacy in your relationship, do the small random acts of kindness. Do those things, a wink, a smile, and that will enhance the relationship. I promise you, just focus on it. Now, if you can't do that, then you have to ask yourself the question, why? Why can I not send that kind of value to this person? Why can't I do it? Now, if you will try, you will find that you, in your, in your heart, you will find much more peace and contentment in your own life. So I encourage you to do that. Now, I think it's interesting. Dr. David Snarch, he's a foremost expert on sexual therapy, and he, he has a marvelous um, works, and I've attended some of his workshops. He, he's, he's a very good presenter, and he understands the concept of helping couples improve their sexual intimacy. But he also focuses on other, other forms of intimacy. But one of the things that he said, Dr. David Snarch said, intimacy is not in a behavior. Although behavior is generally the vehicle of intimacy, intimacy is a skill or an ability. It's a skill. It's not something that we naturally feel e is easy. Now, some people might find it easy, but as a whole, it's a skill that we develop. Think about that for a minute. When we get into relationships, who taught us how to succeed? Who said, sat us down and said, okay, here's how you're going to succeed, son. Now, it doesn't work that way. What happens is people teach us how to succeed and we learn how to succeed. We sit down and we learn and we pay the price. And so we observe people who are succeeding in their relationships. We look at what they're doing, how they're treating each other. So one of the things, I'm, if I can put you on a quest, I want you to identify people who you believe are succeeding in relationships and look at how they are treating each other. What are they doing? What are they doing? Are they smiling at each other? Are they giving each other hugs? Are they doing random acts of service? Hey, sweetheart, let me do that for you. Now, I could take this to roommates. Are you doing the same thing with roommates? Are you doing random acts of kindness? If you want to develop the, the, a healthy climate or environment of where you're at, those are some simple things that you can do. And I highly, highly recommend it. The more energy you put into those types of intimate behaviors, the greater reward you will have. 
All right, so that's the concept of, of creating intimate interactions. I can't emphasize that enough because if you will start with that very process, then you will shift into more healthy dialogue with the people around you. So now, now comes the fun part. Six types of intimacy. Now, if you have a piece of paper, I will encourage you to get out your piece of paper. And the first type of intimacy is the one that most people talk about because, like I said earlier, when we say the word intimacy, you think about sex, sexual intimacy. All right. Well, what exactly is sexual intimacy or physical intimacy? Well, is, is it just sexual intercourse? No, 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 no. Physical intimacy is so much more than that. It's a touch. It's holding hands. It's a hug. Friends actually can have physical intimacy even though it's not sexual. Friends can bump each other. They can hug each other. I know some of the greatest th things that people do, especially when they feel lonely. You ask two women who have been, maybe they've been talking and crying. At the end of that, they get up and they give each other a hug because that hug brings them comfort. We all need physical touch. They did a study with children who lived in orphanages. And what they found is that if these children were not touched, they could literally die. Now, that's children. As adults, it doesn't change. It does not change. Every one of us needs that physical touch. And so married, single, doesn't matter. We need touch. I believe that's why pets are so valuable for some of the elderly people and for people who don't have people, close people to them. Animals are warm. They also don't bark at us. Oh, maybe they do bark at us. But, but what they do is they can give us that warmth. They can give us some of that touch. Why? We are human beings who need touch. We, we absolutely need touch. Without it, 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 we can become depressed and deprived. So here's, here's a couple of other things that go with physical touch. As I said, if you're married or, or you're in a dating relationship, holding hands. Now, one of the most interesting experiences I've ever had you gotta, you got to think about this for a second. One of the most interesting experiences I ever had, I, I was going to uh, class, and the, the instructor was teaching us how to give hand massages. And this is a w weird thing. So here I am with, like, the president of this, of this university. And, uh, I mean, he's, he's part of the hiring committee. And, and, and they say, okay, here's what we want you to do. We want you to give each other a hand massage. I thought, that's weird. Never had a hand massage before. So they taught us how to go back and forth, in and out of the fingers, in, up and down, and all around with a hand massage. And literally had about a five-minute five hand massage. That was an incredible experience. Incredible experience. And I, again, I'm just telling you, we can do so many simple things in a marriage. Can you imagine give, just, just giving your spouse a hand massage? Now, it, what happens is it relaxes the entire body. Touch. Touch, touch, okay? A hug, kissing, cuddling, and then ultimately, if you're married in a situation, the ultimate act that's going to bring you together is sexual intimacy. But that's after we've developed the other types of intimacy. I cannot tell you how many times I've talked with clients and they're so frustrated because all that they have in their sexual relationship is sexual intercourse. They don't have appropriate touch outside of the bedroom and they don't take time to hug each other. And honestly, if you want to do an evaluation of a relationship, all you have to do is ask, okay, what's the touch like in the relationship? Well, we don't really hug each other. We don't kiss each other. And those are some serious red flags for me as a therapist when couples have stopped that type of touch and that type of interaction. 
the only caveat I would say to that, there are times where there has been so much problems, such as abuse or an affair or some type of misbehavior by one spouse, that the physical intimacy needs to stop out of necessity so the other partner doesn't feel like they're being trampled on or taken advantage of because they need to be respected if those trusts have been violated. And that's something that then re takes time to rebuild in the process where hurt has occurred. Now, physical intimacy, questions that I invite you to consider for yourself. Are you comfortable or are you not comfortable with physical intimacy? Just a question for you to consider. If you are comfortable, are your wants overwhelming your spouse or are they about the same? Do you need more touch? Do you need more closeness? What do you need? What does the, your significant other need? Next, how comfortable are you with touch? Is it something that you're comfortable with or is it something you're not comfortable with? Next question, do you allow yourself to enjoy the act of sex or sexual intercourse? I know a lot of people who've grown up in environments where they're afraid of it. They're simply afraid of it because they've never experienced healthy physical touch and sexual intercourse scares them to death. I've known married people who've actually, actually literally never allowed themselves to reach full orgasm. And the reason why is because they have a fear of expressing themselves in that way. And what I want to say to all people is there are, a, there are a lot of ways that you personally can improve in that area. And that there's books out there, there's, uh, and they were not ashamed, which is a very good book by, Dr. La or by Lara Brotherson. There are other books. I, I actually recommended a book uh, for many, many years titled The Act of Marriage. In fact, I gave this book to a man who had been married for 30 years. He came to me and said, you know what, we've struggled most of our married life. I, I haven't known, known how to help my spouse uh, reach orgasm. I haven't been able to help, and I, and I feel bad about it. And so I encouraged them to read this book, The Act of Marriage by Beverly and Tim LaHaye. And he came back to me and he said, I wish I would have known this 30 years ago. Why do we wait so long to get knowledge about infor with information that's literally at our fingertips? In today's world, in today's society, you can go to the internet and you can learn more about something in literally a few minutes of, of looking at key websites than we could have 20 years ago. We would have gone to the library or check out a book, for, look at the encyclopedia. But today we have knowledge at our fingertips and there's no excuse for us not to know how to be at the not forefront of knowledge whether we want to improve our sexual intimacy or whether we want to in improve our communication skills, our conflict problem solving skills, we can do that if we'll pay the price and get the knowledge. So I encourage you to do that. Now, one other question when it comes to physical intimacy, do you hold back? And if you hold back, why? Why? Take some time and write it down. Take some time and spend some of your energy to figure out why you do what you do. And if it goes back into your childhood, then let's spend some time and energy in dealing with your childhood. What are those things from your childhood that are now influencing you as an adult? So this is the first form of intimacy. Obviously, it's, the, it's what I call it's either the, either the hardest or it's the easiest. It Literally, physical intimacy, either it's the hardest thing for couples or individuals or it's the easiest thing. 
And in many instances, it's the easiest thing. The problem is, is far too many people put physical intimacy as such a high priority that we don't focus on the other forms of intimacy. If you and your, uh, if you're married and you and your partner are struggling in the physical intimacy area, I would suggest a couple of specific things. Get more knowledge and identify the reasons why you're struggling in it. Identify the reasons and then talk about it. So that's something that I would suggest. The next part, we're going to be talking about verbal intimacy. Now, researchers have found consistently that women like conversation more than men. It's just research, right? But it's very important to understand verbal intimacy by and in and of itself is self-disclosure. Verbal intimacy is self-disclosure. How many people struggle to disclose their own thoughts, their own feelings? They struggle to communicate with other people. And whether you're single, whether you're married, sometimes people are afraid to share themselves. It's the revelation of personal or private information about oneself. But it is the central component to verbal intimacy. And so what happens when people begin to converse, and this is what I tell people who, who are struggling in this verbal intimacy category. What I tell couples is this, or individuals is this, take time to communicate with other people. Even if you're not familiar with people in any, any setting, you can begin to increase your verbal skills just by talking to people. The more you talk to people, the more comfortable you become. And so one of the things that I, I, I really encourage you to do is spend time talking and interacting with other people. It's a very powerful way to increase the verbal intimacy in your, in your life and in your relationships. So married couples, this is according to uh, research by uh, Waring, and it, uh, this is a researcher, he wrote it in 1980. He said, married couples describe verbal intimacy in this way. It is the sharing our private thoughts, our dreams, our attitudes, our beliefs, and our fantasies. What it does in a relationship, and this is research-based, is self-disclosure facilitates positive feelings and interactions between partners. So verbal intimacy is literally sharing the things that are on our mind, are in our mind. And I talk with couples about this. When couples start having problems, it's because they stop doing the simple things. They stop sharing thoughts with one another. They stop sharing ideas that they have. So if you want to increase the verbal intimacy, and I tell this to married people and to single people, increase the amounts of verbal intimacy you have with people around you. That could be a roommate. That could be your, your partner or your, married, your spouse. Take your pick. Increase the verbal intimacy. What do you, but what are you going to talk about? Ah, that's the question, right? Well, what do we talk about? Well, here's the things that we talk about. We talk about our days, simple things, right? We, initially, we talk about the weather, but then we change it and we say, did you know? And sometimes it's just the did you know question, something that you've learned during the day. Did you know that whatever it may be? It could be about something about politics. It could be something about, I'll give you an example. I'll just share, I'll just share something that I've learned with you recently. Did you know, actually, do you know when the price of silver was the highest? Silver was the highest in the 80, early 80s, $50 an ounce. Do you know what the price of silver is today? The price of silver today is about $13 an ounce. Oh, that went down, right? $50, now it's down. In fact, about uh, 10 years ago, 1997, the price of silver was down to $4 an ounce. 
$4 an ounce. Guess who the smartest investor in the world was? Warren Buffett, you know what he said? It can't go any lower, so he bought 120 million ounces of silver. Yeah, pretty smart thing, right? So he sold it recently, in the last year or two, he sold it at somewhere between nine to 10 to $11 an ounce. Well, if you buy 120 million ounces, let's see, 120 million ounces, $4, let's see, that's okay, that's $520 million roughly. $560 million. And then now let's say he sold on average for $9 an ounce. $120 million times nine. What's that? $108 million? More than that. Ten ten million. Uh, anyway, whatever it is. Hundred million. Whatever it is, he more than doubled more than doubled his uh, the, the amount he made. But what if he would have held on and now it's at thirteen, he would have tripled his money. Anyway, interesting thing. What my point is this. Gold and silver. Did you know for a fact that silver, and this is just this is some, my hobby, but I'm telling you this just because when you have conversations like this, you're sharing your thoughts with people. And that's really the point I'm trying to get across today. Anyway, did you know that today, silver at $13 an ounce, it's likely to continue going up. And the reason why is because silver in, uh, across the history of time has always been a standard of money. In fact, in the history of the world, silver has always been an exchange until the United States government in the early 1900s, 1915 area, uh, somewhere in that time frame, they began to shift it to the dollar. In the 70s, basically, they said that the dollar would overcome the gold standard. And what happened is we now have shifted to a, a dollar rather than a silver dollar or gold coin. And what has happened is we've begun to go on the dollar. Well, what's happening in our economy today? The dollar is going down and gold and silver are going up. That's just a fact. Anyway, those are the things that I've learned. And I share that with you because if you're continually learning, if you're a person who likes to learn and you start sharing thoughts like that with the people around you and they interact and they like those types of thoughts, well, learn things together. So I share that with my spouse or I share that with, well, I'm sharing it with you today. The reason why is I just want you to understand that that's silver, gold and silver. You could talk with me about movies or you could talk to me about a book you've read or you could talk to me about going on some type of a vacation. Couples who grow create verbal intimacy and they talk about whatever. And if you think about it early in the early stages when couples begin to really develop their relationship, what do they do? Talk, 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 talk. That's why, what are they talking about? They're talking about nothing. It worked for them then. Won't it work now? Okay, it did work. Maybe they were talking about something. Their dreams, their goals, their hopes, their aspirations. But what happens is couples stop talking about it. If you want to have a good, close, intimate relationships, it's not that complicated. If you will take the time to create verbal intimacy with the people who you care the most about. Heck, if you want, try with your parents. Try with somebody who you, you would like to have a better relationship with. Call them up. Ask them how they're doing. And in the nature of the conversation, maybe you want to share something that you've learned that's exciting or new. Or maybe you'll do a little bit of research on something that you know that they like. Hey, I was reading about this and or I saw this. Uh, sometimes I'll do that with couples that I know that they're struggling with a specific problem. And I'll say, hey, did you know I saw a movie recently that it really applies to your situation or your circumstance? You might want to watch the movie. And sometimes then they'll come back and say, wow, that was right up my alley. Thanks for recommending that. It's those type of interactions that increase the intimacy in our lives. So increase the verbal intimacy. Now this is a, this is a context, this is a quote a guiding principle within the field of interpersonal communication is that both the content message and a relational message are embedded in every utterance 
So in every communication we have, there's two elements of that communication, the content of what's said, but also the nature of the relationship. And if I understand that very principle in verbal intimacy, I'm going to be doing my verbal intimacy in a, in a way that sends value to the people I care about, and that will increase the verbal intimacy. So for example, if you're, uh, someone comes home and your roommate or your spouse comes home and you ask them how their day is and they say, fine. Well, that doesn't allow you to increase the conversation. But if they say, it's been a little bit of a rough day, but I'm doing okay, that allows you into their world and you say, oh, really? Tell me more about it. Now I'm defining not just the content of what they've said, but I'm starting to focus on the relationship and saying, I care. When couples focus on the I care to talk verbally, they increase the verbal intimacy in the relationship. That's a very important concept if you want to increase the nature and the health that's in the relationship. So remember this, a guiding principle within the field of our interpersonal communication is that the, both the content message and the relational message are embedded in everything that we say. So if I do something with, with kindness, I'm defining the relationship as I care about you. If I'm doing it with coldness, like uh, it was okay, or an emptiness, then I'm basically saying, I don't really want to communicate with you. And you know the people who want to communicate with you. Their messages, the underlying messages, their body language is, hey, tell me more. Help me understand what's going on in your world. That's the verbal intimacy that has the, the non, nonverbal communication. In fact, researchers have found that 93%, 93% of our communication is the nonverbal communication, and only 7% of what we say is actually the words themselves. So you can have verbal intimacy, but it is a whole, your nonverbal message will be in, in your body language, in your tone of voice. And that is what you need to be paying attention to. How good are you at your verbal intimacy with your spouse or with your friends or with the people that you care the most about? And if you're showing interest in their lives, you'll increase the verbal intimacy in your relationships. Very important if you want to have healthy, intimate relationships. Now, let's go to the third type of intimacy. The third type of intimacy is what I call emotional intimacy. Now, some people say, well, I don't, I don't get the difference between verbal intimacy and emotional intimacy. Well, verbal intimacy, we're talking about a whole lot of different things. But emotional intimacy, it is very much, it very much has to do with our emotions. So as an example, if I was talking, I would be sharing an emotion. I feel sad. I'm disappointed. I feel discouraged. I'm so excited. I'm a little bit afraid. I've been worrying about this. Those are specific emotions that open the dialogue into a more deep level rather than just talking about the verbal parts of the weather or something that's more on the surface, a book. I am so excited that you're here. It really helps me understand that you care about our relationship. I'm excited that you called me up. I'm excited that you planned this date. I'm excited that whatever it is. I really am happy that you, that you wrote me that note. It really helps me throughout the day. I'm really pleased that you would share that you're not f happy with me right now. Now that's strange, right? But why can't we do that in our relationships? Why couldn't we say, you know what? I was disappointed that this didn't occur. I was really looking forward to it. But I know that you're busy. But I just want you to let you know that I'm disappointed. Or, you know what? I have a worry about our child. 
And can we talk about it? Because his behavior lately has concerned me, and I want to share my worries with you. I'm really sad, and I don't know why. Would it be okay if I talked through this with you? Those are forms of emotional intimacy that couples can create by taking the time to nurture their relationship together. So emotional intimacy frequently involves people discussing their feelings and their emotions with each other in order to gain a better understanding and to increase their mutual support. It is necessary for human beings to have this form of intimacy on a regular basis because it's part of good mental health. Researchers have found that people who have emotional intimacy have better mental health. And the reason why is because they're sharing their emotions. I know so many people who keep all their emotions bottled up. You can't read them for anything. No happiness, no sad. They're just like, just flowing along. No emotions, no ups, no downs, just blah. Well, what is that? That they're afraid of sharing their emotions. Why are we afraid of sharing our emotions? Primarily, it goes back into our childhood or it goes back to experiences in our relationships where we have been criticized or put down. Or sometimes we're afraid to express emotions because we're afraid that people will make fun of them. Well, if you can create an environment where people are comfortable sharing emotions, then you begin to share your emotions and take a couple risks. Share emotion that's not, not necessarily risky, but if somebody who's a good friend of yours asks you how your day is going and you've been having a bad day, try it. You know, it's been a rough day. Well, tell me more. Well, I don't know. Work was just off the charts boring or work was hard or my boss was a jerk or whatever it is. And that will allow you to increase the emotional intimacy. The more people have emotional intimate emotionally intimate dialogue between the two of them, the more depth comes into the relationship because they're sharing their inner self, their inner thoughts, their inner feelings in a very emotional, personal way. Now, one of the things that we've discovered is that people who understand emotions, their own emotions are also likely to understand other people's emotions. So this is a bad thing about being a therapist, by the way. I can tell sometimes when people are having a bad day because they could walk into my office and even before they sit down, I can sometimes detect their emotions and I say, how are you doing? And that question may be taken one of two ways. How are you doing is how are you doing? Or, okay, really, he wants to know how I'm doing. And more often than not, I'm just saying, how are you doing? What's going on? And how's life treating you? But their very response to that sometimes will teach me that, you know what, they're not doing very well at all. And so I want to say... If you are safe enough to talk with people about your emotions, you'll be also able to be aware of other people's emotions. And if they're having a rough day, if you really want to be a friend and and help other people, ask them and get to know their emotions. It looks like you've had a rough day. Is there anything I can do to help you? That question sends value to the people. If we are in tune with other people's emotions, Sometimes it'll be, hey, you look like you've had a hard day. Can I just give you a hug? Or, you know what? I want you to take a break. I'll take care of the kids right now. I can tell it's been a rough day. Let me give you a break. And and that type of emotional sensitivity creates an awareness, and you basically are recognizing their emotions. And if you're wrong, if you're wrong, no, I've had a, uh, my day's okay. Are you sure? Because I, I, I just sense that. And if I'm wrong, that's okay. But I just was wondering if something is wrong. That's the form of emotional intimacy that really strengthens the bond. 
you're aware of each other's needs, you're aware of their emotions, and you're expressing your emotions. I can't tell you how many people, married people, single people have come to me and said, I just can't read him or I can't read her. I mean, we will, we'll be talking and I just can't put my finger on what, what that emotion is. They, they won't show me the emotion. They won't share their emotions. And those are the people who are, it is so difficult to understand because you don't know where they're, you don't know where they're at. You don't know how to help them. You don't know if they're mad at you. You don't know who they're mad at. And then sometimes they'll just explode and you'll go, oh, where did that come from? So emotional intimacy then is the understanding of your own emotions and also the emotions of other people. And it's being comfortable giving and taking and sharing of those emotions. If you want to increase your mental health, you will be emotionally aware. If you want to read a very good book on this, I rec highly recommend Dr. Daniel Goleman's book, Emotional Intelligence. It is a absolutely marvelous book on helping people understand emotional intimacy. And his argument is that our emotional IQ is as important or more important than our overall IQ. Emotional IQ, very, 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 very important. All right. Up to this point, we've talked about physical intimacy. We've talked about verbal intimacy. We've talked about emotional intimacy. Let me just share a couple of other thoughts related with these types of intimacy. If we just stopped with those three types of intimacy and you just worked on those three types, you would have a significant increase in your relationship satisfaction, in your relationship satisfaction with all people around you. Those are the types of intimacy that enhance relationships and build upon it. Now, there's a problem, though. The problem is those types of intimacy are not happening in far too many relationships. They just simply aren't happening. So now let me move on to the next one. And I'm gonna, again, I've got six types of intimacy that I'm going to be describing. Those are the first three. The next type of intimacy is what I call intellectual intimacy. Intellectual intimacy is when people, moving away from verbal and emotional, it's when people begin to share in the same goals, the same hopes, the same aspirations, the same purpose. They set their minds upon some type of something that they want to do together, and then they do it. That could be finances. We're going to get out of debt. It could be, we want to read a book together. It could be one of my one of my favorite uh, stories has to do with this couple. You can actually read about the story in the book, The Millionaire Mind uh, I, by Thomas Stanley. Really enjoy the book. Fascinating concepts in this book. But what he said, he said, married couples who are millionaires, what they've discovered and what's ironic about this is these couples have stayed together for years, years and years. So he did an extensive study on the millionaires. And what he found is that one couple who as their hobby began going out and finding painters or artists who were in the beginning of their career who they could identify as people who in the long term would be incredible artists. And so they would go and buy their art while it was still cheap and knowing that it would appreciate, they collected these artists' works. That in and of itself helped them become millionaires. Because they, they and they did it together. It's it doesn't cost money to go to a museum and look at art in most situations. And so they would go looking at this art, they would find the artist, and then they would go buy their works. And that was a way that these couples, it was a goal. It was something that they did together. They nurtured their relationship together. Do you get the point here? 
you spend the time doing things. You set goals, and those goals are what you begin to work toward. You have a purpose. And one of the things that I oftentimes say here, when it comes to intellectual intimacy, you have the ability as a couple to nurture each other's intellect. And that is so much fun because you're saying, guess what happened today? And you, we have these goals and we, we're getting out of debt and I've, I'm going to get this raise and we can put our money here and we can go on this vacation here. And what you're doing is you're planning, you're organizing. And intellectually, you are sharing new thoughts and new ideas with each other. That stimulates the mind and it stimulates the relationship. Now compare that to the couple. They come home from work. They're tired. They're worn out. They, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, I don't know. We got a frozen pizza. Uh, let's see, what else do you want to do? Well, I don't know, I'm tired, so I'll just go watch TV. So we have our frozen pizza, or we have our frozen dinner, or we have something to eat, right? Maybe it's something that we brought home from the from fast food restaurant. We're tired, we sit down, we watch TV, we go to the internet, we spend most of the night on the internet, most of the night watching TV, and we say, oh, I'm so tired. You go to bed, you go to work the next day, and you do the whole thing over and over and over and over and over again. And then the weekend comes and you're so tired from and exhausted from your work week that you sit around and you don't do a whole lot. Now, that is a reality for many people. And I, what I say is, if you will set simple minor goals, even one or two nights a week, let's go exercise together. Let's go swimming. Let's go on a bike ride. Let's go for a hike. Let's go to the bookstore. Let's do something. Let's learn a new skill together. One of the things that my wife and I, in a couple weeks, we will be celebrating our 13th wedding anniversary. And in our married time together, we have read over 80 books together aloud. Harry Potter. Um, we've read, you know, Frankenstein, The Moonstone. Uh, we've just, uh, we've read some Tom Clancy books. We just read, read, read. And any, anytime we're on the road, we have these books. And we talk about it. Do you like this book? Do you like this character? Do you do like this? Do you do this? It's an exciting thing for us as a couple to be able to talk about what we liked, what we didn't like, the characterization. We like watching movies together and saying, did you like the movie? Did you not like the movie? Again, we're talking about things. We're creating this around us. I, I have my good friends, Ken and Sharon Patey, who I've done a lot of radio shows with and been working with for years. One of the things that I absolutely am amazed about their relationship, if you ever talk to them, they're just always talking about new ideas, new, 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 new ideas. I remember one time I uh, woke up early in the morning and it was about seven o'clock and I thought, well, I'd probably not better call. So I until 7.30. I call them up at 7.30 and they said, oh yeah, we've been talking about this since 6 a.m. this morning. And they just talk and talk and talk and talk about new ideas and new ways of uh, what, why relationships work the way they do or things they could present or things that they could do to help increase people's awareness about healthy relationships. Now, my point is this. Couples who have that type of intellectual dialogue, they grow together. They grow together because they're taking time to spend the time. They're intellectually nurturing the relationship. Now, if you will take the time to do that, there's obviously different types of intelligence. But one of the things that we've discovered that, and this comes from uh, seven different kinds of intelligence under Dr. Gardner. Now, Dr. Gardner, if you go to Google and you type in uh, 
if you type in intelligence in Dr. Gardner, there are seven specific things that he discusses as forms of intelligence. And I want to share those unique strengths or those unique forms of intelligence that you could use in your relationship as a way to increase the intellectual intelligence. First of all, he talks about uh, verbal, reading, writing, telling stories, memorizing dates, thinking in words. And what really what we're talking about here is when you tell a story to your spouse, you're creating an image out there. A, a story creates a, a something in, in their mind. It creates something that becomes real. So a form of, ver, form of verbal communication. Next is the logical, which is problem solving or patterns. Sometimes it includes math, uh, and this could be done with your, your bookkeeping or in your relationship. It could be about your finances. So there's a logical part. Then there's the visual or spatial intelligence, which includes reading maps, charts, drawing, mazes, puzzles, imagining things or visualization. And I know some couples who are, they do, they do mazes or puzzles together. They do like crossword puzzles together and they'll just talk about it. Okay. That's a form of intimacy, but that's a visual context. Next is bodily or kinesthetic, which is exercise, dancing, arts, crafts, using tools. And they, sometimes couples will do things like that together. I know some couples that will, uh, I, I, one of my great stories that I have about this is a good friend of mine who during his teenage years, he, he used a lot of drugs and uh, became addicted to drugs. And finally, he checked himself into a rehab center. He checked himself into a rehab center, uh, got out, m- met his now wife. And over the time, he's gone from using drugs to smoking, to quit smoking, to running marathons. And it's really interesting. A few years back, he and his wife, they trained together to run a marathon. It was a delight to hear their story. The first marathon they ran together, they ran the whole thing together. They crossed the finish line together, hand in hand. And, and, and one of the things that just, it just absolutely excites me to see that type of change from drugs to running a marathon together. Now, my point, that's a, again, that's a form of intelligence that they've created together, something that they've chosen to do together. Next is musical, singing. I just the other day had a family that they, they were practicing singing as a family. Now, that's the thing that you can do to create family intimacy, right? So that's also increases intelligence. Next is interpersonal. And sometimes our intelligence is understanding people, understanding organization and communication, resolving conflicts. And that sometimes in a relationship, every couple has their own strengths. Every individual has their own strength. Interpersonal is the ability to communicate our ideas one with another. And it's improving that in our, in our dyadic relationships. And then the next is intrapersonal, and that is understanding myself. And people with high intellectual intelligence or that create intellectual intimacy have a very high awareness of themselves. They recognize their own strengths. They recognize their own weaknesses. They set their own internal goals so they can have more intimate relationships on the outside. So that's a form of intellectual intimacy. In some today, we've covered four different types of intimacy, and we've created, we've talked about four, we've talked about intimate interactions. So we began with intimate interactions, then we talked about physical intimacy, we talked about verbal intimacy, and then we spent time discussing emotional intimacy, and we just concluded discussing intellectual intimacy. I want to encourage you to discuss these with your partner as a way to increase the four types of intimacy in your relationship. Next time, when we come back, We'll be discussing the fifth and sixth type of intimacy that are very valuable for couples. These are critical in helping you create the long-term intimacy in your relationship. This has been part three of Finding and Creating True Intimacy with Dr. Kevin Skinner. I look forward to being with you in part four of this series.